Hello and welcome to Lou Harry Gets Real, a podcast about arts, culture, play, puns, and stumbling forward through life. I'm Mookie Harris, your announcer and co-host for this evening, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to this episode of this experiment in conversation and music, recorded live from the Oxford Room of the Aristocrat Pub. Woo! Yeah. Delicious. Our guests tonight are singer-songwriter band leader Tim Brickley, science fiction writer Cat Falls, plus all the good folks who have filled the Oxford Room tonight. And now, please welcome your host, a guy who has had over 40 books published but never on first try, spelled the word Cincinnati correctly, Lou Harry. Hello. Hi, Lou. Hello, Mickey. Quick story. My brother George collected autographed baseball cards. This was back in the 1970s when collecting baseball cards wasn't quite the industry that it is today with people selling autographs and all that. Opportunists doing it for money may have been there at the time, but players didn't seem to be aware of them, so they were generous if you could reach them. George was smart about such things. He'd track down the addresses of players and send them self-addressed stamped envelopes with polite letters asking for a signature on a card. I have no idea what the extensive collection that he amassed would be worth or is worth today. I'm not even sure if he cares because he has three baseball-loving kids and he was in it for the love of the game and I know they are too. I, on the other hand, had no interest whatsoever in baseball. While he chased down Gary Maddox and Barry Bonds, he was a Giants fan, and yes, I had to look those names up, <laughs> I was reading science fiction. I was reading lots of science fiction. And inspired by George, I decided to write to science fiction writers. And of course, learning from him, I sent a self-addressed stamped envelope, uh, an index card, and a polite personal letter to each telling what their stories meant to me and asking sometimes for some writing advice. I never heard back from Harlan Ellison. If you know Harlan Ellison, you would understand why I never heard back from Harlan Ellison. But some, like Ray Bradbury and Fritz Lieber, they signed and returned the cards, which I thought was great. And then there was William F. Nolan. Nolan is perhaps best known as the co-author of the novel Logan's Run, if you remember Logan's Run. And the guy who wrote the script for two-thirds of that, do you remember that TV movie Trilogy of Terror with Karen Black? Oh, yeah. He wrote the two that didn't involve that creepy fetish doll. <laughs> the two that nobody remembers. But anyway, um, he'd written that. He wrote for, for Twilight Zone and Night Gallery and all this kind of stuff and a bunch of novels. Um, he didn't use, he didn't send back my envelope. Instead, he sent a larger one. And it was illustrated on the front and back. He appreciated that I had found and enjoyed his science fiction noir paperback novel, Space for Hire. He shared behind the scenes details about the film version of Logan's Run, and he offered a lengthy handwritten primer on writing tips. Now jump ahead to the 2000s. I'm not reading much science fiction anymore at that time, but I'm making a living putting words together. I've co-founded and I'm editing a new magazine, and one of our initiatives was to include original fiction in every issue. While going through the slush pile of unsolicited manuscripts, mostly very difficult to read, 
I flashed back to those writers who had been so generous as to respond to a kid from Wildwood, New Jersey. So I reached out to those that are still around. And it turns out writers like it when paying markets contact them. <laughs> I ended up publishing original work by David Gerold, who wrote the Trouble with Tribbles episode of Star Trek. Uh, he also wrote the uh, autobiographical book that became The Martian Child. I don't know if you know that one. Um, and I published a, a story by Nebula Award-winning writer Gregory Benford. And then there was William F. Nolan. Not only did I buy a story from him, but we struck up a correspondence that also led to him doing a nonfiction piece about Steve McQueen, who he was friends with. He also, out of nowhere, sent me an 8x10 of my Logan's Run movie crush, Jenny Agutter. Um, it's so rare in life that we get to even in a small way give back to those who have influenced us when we were very young. But I didn't really see this as a give back because while I gave Nolan a little work, he gave me more stories that I could offer in our magazine. Nolan, uh, who turns 91 next month and is still with us, um, who, he's now, I realize, um, when he got my letters back then, he was younger than I am now. So while working on this, I, I paused to send him a note, another one of appreciation. I'm hoping uh, that he receives it. I thought of him once the lineup for today's show solidified. I realized that Cat Falls, who you'll meet in a little bit, has a strong following among middle readers and young adults, although her books are a great pleasure for grown-ups too. Uh, given the changes in technology, she's interacting with readers in a way that I couldn't have dreamed of back then, and I look forward to talking with her about how that works for her. Um, my co-host, Mookie Harris. Hi. Hi. Not only is one of the top improvisers in the Indianapolis theater community, but he also works with young people on a daily basis at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, the finest children's museum in the world, by the way. That's true. Where he is the lead interpreter of Dinosphere. So if your kids were in the Dinosphere area asking those questions that kids seem to only know about when it comes to dinosaurs, Mookie may be the person he was, uh, he was talking to. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, were you always good with kids? Tell me a little bit about that interaction. How? Yeah, yeah. it's funny. Like, uh, like I babysat kids when I was an older kid myself and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, and, and I was constantly doing like... Um, Growing up in Carmel before I moved away one of five times before okay. moving back and forth and back and forth, uh, my brother and I used to do these like backyard productions. Uh -huh. They were like summer variety show. <laughs> we were bored, and and They're so we spinning plates and doing yeah, it's like whatever magic. kids in the neighborhood wanted to do. So like if there was uh, some kid nearby who could ride a unicycle, I was like yep, why not? You're Put him in. I just remember one of my friends across the street doing um, a full production of Star Wars okay. <laughs> using his action figures in a shoebox. And he had told me, like, I'm going to do this thing. He was literally doing it scene for scene. <laughs> and about scene three, we had to go, there are other people. We, have to <laughs> we haven't left Tatooine. Do you, do you find that, I mean, do you get these kids who just want to talk nonstop with you about dinosaurs? That's yeah, and, and it's a, an interesting thing because um, if you, say, as a parent, had a kid who was into, let's say, baseball, right, and uh, you took them to a baseball game 
and walked up to somebody in the organization and said, he's going to be a baseball player someday. He can name every player. <laughs> right. <laughs> Doesn't mean anything. Nothing. And yet, because as, as adults, most of us don't go deep dive into paleontology <laughs> past the age of 10. Right. Um, so the average parent assumes that their child knows every single thing about dinosaurs. Because the parent doesn't know anything. Correct. Right. Correct. Okay. And so every day I'm told she knows everything about dinosaurs. <laughs> now, do you throw quizzes? Well, them? no, because that's, that's the, the tough challenge for me is honor that, that um, passion mm -hmm. and the knowledge that they bring in and then somehow try to turn that to the, the biggest lesson I can ever teach them, which is there's always more to learn about dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. we, we will never know everything. And so that's, that's my toughest challenge daily is just uh, keeping that enthusiasm, not crushing it, but turning it into, look, I've shown you a new door. Uh, were you a science nerd as a kid? Not really. No. I, I, um, I was a nerd, sure. <laughs> But uh, but my my uh, 10th grade chemistry teacher will tell you I was terrible. Uh -huh. And how did that, did you mention that in your job interview with the Children's Museum? No, no, <laughs> I haven't mentioned that since 10th grade. Okay. You're all witness to it for the first time. There we go. Um, did the kids try to stump you? Sometimes. Uh, yeah, especially um, there are so many good TV shows these days between like documentaries on Animal Planet and Netflix is full of them now. Uh, but also kids shows like mm -hmm. Dinosaur Train and Dino Dan and things like that. That um, when I was a kid, we had books and movies and the occasional TV show and it was all aimed at little boys. Mm -hmm. The entire uh, marketing of dinosaurs was these are cool monsters from the mm -hmm. past. and And now it's these are wild animals that used to live on the earth and they're for everybody. And, and between that and the Jurassic Park effect, right. which basically this side of 1993, mm -hmm. the field of paleontology has doubled. Mm -hmm. there, there are twice as many paleontologists now and it all traces back to the Michael Crichton novel a bit, but especially the Steven Spielberg movie. I think you're underestimating the impact of Barney. <laughs> I, you know, we all raised, some of us raised kids in that it's era. It's true, it's true. <laughs> um, we, one of the things we like to do every month, for those of you who are regulars here listening to the show, either live or there, is uh, we put out a request. Um, I'm a fan of puns and bad stuff like that, lame humor like that. Um, this time, we decided, given our guests, that we would ask uh, readers on Facebook, and you go to Lou Harry Writer on Facebook, by the way, if you want to join in on one of these. And we asked them to turn a non-science fiction or fantasy movie, book, song, whatever, TV series, into science fiction by adding, subtracting, or changing a word. For instance, Soylent Green Book. Ooh. You're allowed to groan, by the way. <laughs> Slaughterhouse Fievel Goes West. <laughs> Uh, the unbearable light speed of being, which was fun. Oh, yeah, any, I like feel that. free to chime in and help me out here. Uh, sure, to kill a mockingjay. Oh, there we go. Very nice. A Star Trek is born. Nice, nice. Pride and Predators. Ooh, very good. Lorna Dune. 
D-U-N-A-L-Z. Oh, that's nice. Or, and also, the lovely Bones McCoy. <laughs> I, I went uh, Nigerian with uh, The Thing Falls Apart. Ooh. <laughs> Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret Atwood. I had Are You There, God? It's Me, Martian Chronicles. Oh, there you go. Close that's very nice. Uh, the Maltese Millennium Falcon would be a good one, I think. Ooh, good. Uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Little Women. <laughs> the Omega Man Who Came to Dinner, which would be a good double feature with the Illustrated Man of La Mancha. Ooh. Uh, I had one that works both ways, Invisible Man. Oh, okay. All right. Kramer versus Klingon. Ooh, nice. And C-3P Oklahoma. You have to have a musical in there. Uh, their Eyes Were Watching Godzilla. <laughs> That's very good. Um, oh. One of our readers who happens to be here tonight, Kevin Cole, chimed in in honor of Cat Falls. It's a wonderful dark life. Nice. her novel. you got to love that. Uh, there's also The Fault in Our Starship Troopers. Ooh. Which is always good. Uh, my wife offered Super 8 is Enough. Nice job, good. Cindy. Hey, she's here. Laugh louder than that, please. Come on. <laughs> the Milky Way We Were. We could go on for days here. Uh, Ewok to Remember. I kind of like that oh, one. Hi. Wow. Is, is the writer of that one here? The writer of that one is not here. Oh, that's too bad. I was that, about to give a hug. That is a shame. Crazy Rich Invasions. <laughs> <laughs> this also could tie into a Cat Falls book, Manimal House. Oh. Fraternity. Uncle Buck Rogers. I like that comedy. That works. Absolutely. We're, we're not done yet. One, couple, no, couple no, more. no. I don't want to be done. Oh, well, let's do Pink Floyd's The Wally. <laughs> Fantastic. Isn't that good? Logan's Midnight Run had to be in there. Oh. The, the lost Jerry Lewis science fiction film, The Day the Clone Cried. <laughs> That's an obscure one, but I was going to really say Deep Cut, but I love it. Yeah. Anything else? I'll go with uh, The Grapes of the Wrath of Khan. Oh, very good, very good. <laughs> Area 51 Ways to Leave Your Lover. How's that? Ooh. <laughs> Our producer came up with Roswell That Ends Well. I kind of like that, too. Nice. Uh, for those who like Clockwork Orange, there's Must Love Droogs. Dead silence. We can't end on that one. <laughs> the Smeagol versus Larry Flint. <laughs> good. One day at a time machine. How about that? We need something strong to I end like with. that. My only last one is uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the War of the Worlds. Well, that's very good. And we just lost Albert Finney, the actor, recently. So let's oh, do yeah. R2-D2 for the road. Oh, yeah. And be let's end on that one with Sounds good. fun session this Woo! time. That might not be the best lead-in, but we're going to welcome uh, our main guest for this evening. Um, what the heck? Let's welcome guest Cat Falls. Cat. Cat <laughs> creates worlds. Her books, Dark Life and its sequel, Riptide, are set in a future where rising waters have created overcrowding on land, turning the undersea world into a kind of Old West, where settlers try to harvest food for those on the surface and where the frontiers invite lawlessness. On top of a pile of awards, including selection for Al Roker's Al's Book Club on the Today Show, uh, the book was optioned by Disney and got rave reviews all over the place. Next, Kat created the world of Inhuman, uh, set in a very different future, one in which its heroine has grown up on the other side of a wall that divides the US after a mutating virus has led to a quarantine of pretty much everything east of the Mississippi. 
Uh, yes, Hoosiers, we are on the bad side of that one. <laughs> uh, rave reviews from Publishers Weekly and Kirk has followed as to the sequel, Undaunted, which will be out in March. And this is kind of officially launching uh, that book today. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about world building first. I'm curious, these, all of your books seem to be, uh, to exist beyond the page. There seems to be a lot more to these worlds than we're getting. You know how sometimes you read something and you feel like, well, everything's in here. Here it feels like there's a whole world and we're exploring a part of it. How much work goes into creating that world originally? Hi, Lou. Thank Hello. you for having me. <laughs> I love hearing these old touchstones from my childhood, like Logan's Run was yep. very important to me. Absolutely. Night Watcher. Stalker. Can't even talk. Night Stalker. Yeah, Night Stalker. Um, world building. Uh, it's, I do school visits, a lot of school visits, and the question I get is similar, not so articulate, and that's, <laughs> how do you come up with this? <laughs> and it's different ways, but I, I tend to be an integrationist and it's similar to things you do when you hear kids talk and I'm, I know everything about dinosaurs. For my first book, I do writing exercises and at the time I still have three children, but at the time my oldest was 11 and he was obsessed with ocean, everything in the ocean, and could name every shark. And I was the parent that thought he knew everything about every shark and would talk about them at length at dinner. And one of my writing exercises I gave myself because I'd set my timer for 10 minutes because I had three kids and I couldn't do a lot of writing, but I figured I could keep my brain juicy until the day when I could write again. And I decided to take his three main interests and see if I could turn them into a story. And it was the ocean, and the second thing he was obsessed with was westerns. And that's in part because I made him obsessed with westerns. <laughs> I read him Old Yeller, I showed him Stagecoach, and the last thing was the X-Men. So I thought, can I combine the ocean and pioneers and the X-Men into one story? And it's what writers always hope for. It just fell into my brain. And I thought, a Western under the ocean, set in the future, after global warming, and the lead will be just like the lead in Old Yeller. So okay. it's like a 15-year-old, his name is Ty, and the one in Old Yeller is Trevor. And they'll be outlaws. And my dinger went, and I had to go make dinner, and <laughs> it kept talking to me all night and then I was creating the world because that's where world building comes for me is having fun where I was like okay how do you do the black hats and the white hats oh dive helmets the, the bad guys have tinted dive helmets and they're gonna go around in a submarine shape like a giant great white shark because that would be cool mm -hmm. so what's very clear is I'm very in touch with my inner 10 year old boy because <laughs> I go for the cool and I had these three children that I could test ideas out on, and if I could get an awesome out of them, then I knew that was going in the book. And the way I choose what story to write is when it won't shut up, when the ideas keep coming and I have to write them down in the middle of the night because I can't sleep. And so I decided I was gonna do that one as my first time writing a novel. Um, I'd written, I take it back, I had written a novel. I had tried years earlier, put it under the bed, never saw the light of day. But I decided to write a middle grade novel. And well, I could test it out on my kids. Let's, I'm exploring that because a lot of people don't necessarily, including me, 
understand all the nuances of how the publishing world works. You're deciding to write a middle reader novel. What does that mean and what restrictions does that put on you? I didn't know at the time. I just wanted to tell a good story. Now I am aware of the industry, but at the time I had no contact with the industry. I was reading middle grade adventure stories aloud to my kids every night. And when you read something aloud, you start to get a feel of how long chapters are, how long sentences are, and that helped me. So I thought, I can do this. And I have an MFA in screenwriting, and I teach screenwriting. And I realized middle grade novels are very much screenplays because they're so action-oriented and external. And there's a lot of white space on the page because middle grade readers do not want to see a big chunk of text. So I figured I could do this. And I jumped in, and it didn't come easy. I had to make mistakes, as you know. I made plenty of mistakes, but it found its way. How does, I'm curious about the teaching piece of this. You're teaching screenwriting. How different is writing a script versus writing one of your novels in terms of preparation, in terms of, because your books feel very cinematic to me. I feel like, I mean, I'm projecting, but I feel like you're thinking about what this would look like if it were on TV or if very it were on screen. So. Are you? I, I still write. I was trained to write as a screenwriter and I still write like a screenwriter and I do passes. I don't try and get it right on the first time and I have outlined. I know where I'm going, what my beats are and I keep my language lean because I'm writing for a younger audience mm -hmm. and Younger audiences today have so much entertainment to choose from. They can binge on Netflix. They've got stuff on their phones. They've just got so much, much more than we had, that if I'm going to even compete, I can't ask them to wade through a first chapter that's just exposition or boring. I have to start right away, and I don't get to slow down much. Mm. I noticed when I moved to YA for my next series, that was a little different, because then I could go a little more internal and chew it over, and I realized that wasn't my favorite thing to do. I managed mm. to, but I like action. I like sci-fi. Mm -hmm. What? Where does that come from for you? Where does the science interest? Uh, my dad was a big sci-fi geek, and he, he was a professor of science, would take me into Washington, D.C. for premieres, even though it was a school night for <laughs> Star Wars, and proceeded to talk throughout Star Wars about how you wouldn't see the laser beams in space, because space is a vacuum, <laughs> and to see it, you would have to have articles. And Alien, when I was in sixth grade, not a good match. But, but actually, then I proceeded to always think about what would Ripley do? anytime I was in a situation. So I then carried that tradition on with my own children. Weeknights, if it's you a premiere I want to see. <laughs> Star Trek, the okay. new one, and anything like that. We'll go at midnight on a school night. Uh, so it came from him, but I also have a degree from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute where I had to learn a lot of science just because I was a professor's kid, not because I wanted to be there. <laughs> but I, what, the great thing that I'm grateful for is I'm never intimidated about reading about science, mm -hmm. and that is where I get my ideas, is I am actually combing journals for new science and mm -hmm. new stuff that catches my eye. No. Like the fact there's an ocean in space, a giant ocean. 
all by itself in space. Explain, please. Uh, it just, I read that and I was like, oh, that's a book setting. I don't know what I'm doing with it, but that blows my mind. Yeah. Do you start at a cool idea and then figure out the science of it? Or do you go the other way? No, I keep, uh, I have to find the trigger. And so I keep, I throw ideas into a folder. And when I sold Dark Life and my agent that I got sold it in a two book deal and he said, now that you're editing it with the editor, um, I want you to have your next idea because if the first book comes out and you get bad reviews, I don't want you to be the writer who then can't write anymore because she believes the bad reviews. I want you to already be working on something. And I said, I would never do that. <laughs> I would totally do that. <laughs> but he gave me this thing. He said, I want you to have a girl protagonist this time, and I want it to be YA so your readers can grow up with you. And again, I laughed at him. I said, I don't write like that with that kind of specificity. And he said, it has to be near future science fiction again. So I went through my files looking for things that not only interested me intellectually, it couldn't just be science that was like cool, it had to get me viscerally right in the gut. And it was right about a year after swine flu had that huge scare where they were sure we were all gonna be wiped out by swine flu. Down in Mexico there were some cases and I'd saved it because at the time it had gotten me in the gut not because of the virus aspect. I'm quite sure we're all going to be wiped out by a virus. Oh, sure. <laughs> it, it was the jumping species that they found out that it came from pigs because pig DNA is carried on the virus. And I thought that was really weird that pig DNA is carried on the virus. That's how they know bird flu comes from birds. But I then had to look farther into it because that provoked me and that was when I wanted to study and apparently they use viruses to move DNA between plants and they do it for good reasons. They want to make a plant drought resistant and they'll pick up qualities from one plant on a virus, carry it over, infect another plant and it absorbs the qualities. You can do that in the US, you cannot do that with animals even though the science exists. They could. The US has rules about it. I just figured some scientist somewhere is not going to follow the rules. And that's when I thought, I don't want animal DNA dumped in me with a virus. And that's where my book, Inhuman, I called my agent and I said, what about a virus that dumps animal DNA in you and you start to change and you get some animal characteristics, but you never go all the way animal because you're still mostly human. Would that be cool? And there's this long silence. And he's like, yes, Kat. <laughs> and he had little kids and he called them over right then because it was nighttime. And he said, what kind of animal would you want to be if you had to be part animal? And I was like, oh, well, if he's going to ask his kids that, that's what I need. Now, part of this novel, I have to bring this up because I'm sure it predates current events. Your novel, Inhuman, involves the building of a giant wall. <laughs> Let's talk about that a little bit. When I wrote it, there was no talk of a wall in the world. And I don't ever, my wall is a quarantine line and it runs down the bank of the Mississippi River, splitting the infected side from the healthy side. The east is the infected side with mammals running around who have a disease that 
progresses through their body, changes their body, like syphilis. I don't tell that to my young readers. <laughs> so it's got a really long infection. But then it moves like rabies into your brain, turning you feral, and then you want to bite and infect someone else. And then all the germaphobes that are healthy live in the West. And the wall is their quarantine line. And I felt really awkward when the wall became this chant, build the wall, and I thought, I hope no one does the metaphor of my wall is separating the country in any way that makes me uncomfortable. It really is just a quarantine line. <laughs> There's no subtext other than that. We were, uh, we were talking earlier about um, my connection with writers at the time, and I know that um, you have more, back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, if you wanted to hear what somebody thought of one of your books, there might be a handful of reviews. Um, you might get a letter from some kid who liked your stuff. But in general, you didn't hear what thousands of people thought. Through Goodreads and other sources now, that stuff is out there. How do you use that, ignore that, protect yourself from it, learn from it? What's your your thinking and has that changed since the first book? It has tremendously. It has been a learning curve. Partly because middle graders, my first series was for middle graders, don't write on Goodreads. <laughs> so I would get very nice emails. I would also get big envelopes from classes where the kids would write me letters and the teacher would send me the envelope with drawings of undersea creatures. Lovely, mm. all sweet, all just heartwarming. Mm. And then I wrote, a YA novel and teenagers are a whole different breed <laughs> and when they have strong opinions they have no filter and so I made the mistake of going on Goodreads and starting to read some of them and so many of them were lovely reviews but they also have strong opinions of where they wanted characters to go within the series and that was difficult because sometimes it was really good ideas and I was like oh I should change what I was going to do based on these ideas but also the minute I started reading any criticism it was really hard to shake it off and writers are people, we're sensitive, and so I had to learn to not go on Goodreads. I had to cut myself off and not read it. And the email I get now is mostly lovely, and what's wonderful is when I get kids who say, I am now in college studying marine biology because of dark life. Those just send me over the moon. But I did get one, because I took a long time between Inhuman and writing the book that's coming out, that's the sequel, Undaunted, and I would get very impatient letters from young people, including, hey babe, are you even writing the sequel? And then it was from Matthew in seventh grade in Ohio. And I was like, well, Matthew, I'm trying my best. Now, having both books having sequels, did you have in mind from the beginning what the second book was going to be? Uh, no, I conceived of Dark Life as a standalone. It was my debut. And when they bought it in a two-book deal, it was easy because it, it's such a pioneer town, such a Western, and there are so many tropes in Westerns that I love that the first one is very much of the East Coast girl coming to the Western town and seeing it, and that's what the first one is. It's a topsider coming down to see the farms on the bottom of the ocean. And the second one is searchers underwater. Mm. <laughs> so the kidnapped person is his parents. And it was very easy to conceive of. Mm -hmm. Does 
Now, obviously, in those genres, I mean, Twilight was the big dog of teen horror. Hunger Games was the leader in young adult science fiction. Do you avoid reading other books in the genres you're writing, or do you absorb those? I love YA. I devour YA. So, no, I absolutely... Hunger Games came out right when I was shopping in human and I couldn't get enough of it and it ended up selling to the same editor and I had the same publicist and I got to meet her and was a total fangirl to Suzanne Collins so I love YA I read it all the time how about movies and TV shows do you take I in those devour as well? science fiction and I made sure all three of my children were fans too so that I have buddies to watch it with <laughs> And who were some of those early re- writers that you read before you were writing? Stephen King. I grew up reading Stephen King because they didn't have YA when I was, they had The Outsiders. Right. But other than that, they didn't have YA for teenagers. It mm-hmm. just didn't exist. So you go right to the stand and books like that. How many? Are and Margaret a, Atwood. Wait, are there a lot of ideas that you throw, you've thrown away? Can you tell us some that, that hit dead ends? Nothing ever gets thrown away. It gets thrown into a file to hopefully someday spark me again. But there's always the sexy new idea. Mm-hmm. Whenever I'm working on a piece and I'll hit the part where I don't know what to do with it, I'll instantly my brain comes up with some great idea that would be so much easier to write than the one I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And I think of it as the sexy new idea and I give it two days. That's my limit. I get to write everything I can think about it for two days, and then it has to go in a file. And actually, usually by the end of the two days, I have figured out it's not so sexy. It's mm. going to be as hard as the one I was working on. <laughs> what bothers you in when you're reading or you're watching a TV show or a movie that you know deals in the same kind of worlds that you do? What turns you off? What annoys you? What makes you go, oh, come on? I'm such a fangirl. It just, it doesn't happen. When I was late to Game of Thrones and when I finally started it, I couldn't stop it. My son's sitting over there. He knows. It was just, it was not pretty. I couldn't walk away. So I don't shut down usually. If the writer of the show or the book is doing their job and weaving a great story i'm just in love i'm just take me away just day trip me somewhere else the ones that would annoy me is if they are so clearly cribbing from something else that they're not even really in love with their own work they they're just doing it because they think somehow it will sell those bother me but you can recognize those by the first chapter and i don't finish Well, you you mentioned Game of Thrones. What I want to do is bounce off both of you some popular series in science fiction, fantasy, and just spitball. Get your give me your thoughts, history with um, what your Luke sure. Game of Thrones guy. Uh, yeah, uh, but I haven't read any of the books. Mm. Uh, I got into it through the HBO series. Um, my dad had already read the books up until the point when the series started. And said, "This is really good. You've got to, when this comes out, watch this." Mm-hmm. And and I have ever since. I I love it. But I've never gotten. Uh, it's daunting. It's one of those things that like to go back now and pick up the first book and read through. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I I I need to take two years off right. and just devour that. Okay, let's go with some of the big ones. How about Star Trek? Are you Star Trek folks? Yeah. yeah. From way back, way, 
the original my dad had me addicted to, New Generation, was my grad school years. Couldn't get enough of data. And, and so the revamp of it, my kids were right there midnight, even though they were small. Mm -hmm. I'm saying uh, my, my dad was a sci-fi uh, reader and viewer from way back. And when I was a kid, Star Trek was in evening syndication reruns. And we would watch that, and then Next Generation was was my generation. I was in college for that, and mm -hmm. we got into that together, and the movies and, and all that. Um, I have not seen Discovery yet, mm -hmm. but uh, but everything else, yeah, absolutely. I would put in a bid for if you haven't seen the Orville, which to me is I more love Star the Trek than yes. some of the Star Trek shows. Yeah, I expected Galaxy Quest. Right. It's It's more faithful Star Trek. It's really rich and interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars. I've done it. I, I am not obsessed as many people my generation are. Because? Because I dated too many men who were, wanted to bring it up on the first date. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Line. Mookie, did you bring up Star Wars on the first date? I time? did not. <laughs> Man. You dodged that <laughs> Yeah. But if I had known that that was a, a good way to get out of a bad date. Was, <laughs> there uh, you go. No, but um, uh, I was the prime age. Star Wars came out when I was 10. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was unexpected. Like, there was no big hype for Star Wars. It came out of nowhere and just... It was the thing that knocked me out of dinosaurs. Mm. Like, I was 10, and I was really super into that. And all of a sudden, it was Star Wars. And then that was followed by Kiss. And, <laughs> and then there were girls. And uh, so it, it was... Uh, it hijacked a lot of male minds. Yeah. And very important. It's a gateway drug <laughs> yes, into a lot really of... it really was. <laughs> Other series that have spoken to you or that you've really written out? Are you the Hitchhiker's Guide, Doctor Who, mm. Ender's Game, any of those? Ender's Game. Yeah. But uh, Handmaid's Tale, when it first came out, became oh. my favorite novel. And so I was so excited to see the series. And they've done a brilliant job with it. Does it bother you if the movie is or the movie or series differs from? No, I'm okay with that. But I know plenty of people who are not, and they're not fun to go to the movie with because they have to talk to you throughout about how something's changed from the book. How how did it feel when your book was optioned by Disney? That was very exciting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was a very fun moment, and because. The director that was attached was Robert Zemeckis, and I had oh, wow. so admired him. It was exciting, and now it's sitting in a vault somewhere because he <laughs> left Disney, broke up. They had a divorce, so he went to another studio. Didn't take my piece with him. Couldn't. That is a common story in Hollywood. A is. lot of people sort of don't know about that world. Oh, your, your book got optioned. Great. When's the movie coming out? Yeah, exactly. And they don't realize that it can take decades or it can sit in a vault or yeah. it can happen quickly. Yeah, and we get excited about, ooh, so-and-so's attached to it. Yeah, but not permanently. Right. That that might happen. Mm -hmm. Any others? Uh, Dune, the old school ones? Foundation Trilogy? Yeah, I, I got into Dune through the, the weird movie. Right. Because uh, I was a police fan, so Sting. Right. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that whole series. Mm -hmm. um, Foundation Trilogy, yes. Um, uh, I, I didn't find Ender's Game until I was too old for it. 
Uh, that's a great book when you're uh, a young kid, I think. It is a great gateway drug to hand to a 12-year-old boy. Right yeah. when, Right when they're hitting, because there's such a... Uh, desert when for 12 year old boys it's part of why I, I aimed dark life at middle school boys because there's great books and then suddenly it all falls away and they either can do sports books but if they're not into that my son was starting to read adult science fiction which can be problematic sure the, absolutely so Ender's Game was perfect yeah I never really thought about that but it's true I from my perspective I just there were all these kids books and then they just kind of stopped. And then I picked up Stephen King, which wasn't aimed at me, but it was right. intriguing. Accessible. Yeah. And, and then eventually became an adult reading adult fiction. But there was that huge gap in there where there wasn't anything really aimed at me. Less so now. Now it's getting filled in. Yeah, Neil Schusterman, fabulous, brilliant writer. I remember hitting uh, that. I mean, I was reading a lot of stuff, but I went from like zero to Stephen King. Yes. You know what I mean? There was like, I wasn't reading exist. The Wanderers. There was nothing in there. So I was reading stuff like Robert Silverberg and Harlan mm -hmm. Ellison mm -hmm. and people like that, who some of it was way out there. Yeah. Um, but I learned a lot <laughs> <laughs> through those. Yeah. Um, what do you... Big picture stuff. What's the value besides going on a rip roaring adventure? What do you think the value is of reading science fiction and fantasy for adults or kids? Well, science fiction and fantasy is never just about the monster or the technology. It's always about metaphorically something going on in our world. Otherwise, it's just spectacle and we'll never hold the hearts of the readers or the viewers. It has to have some resonance in our life, even if it's unintentional like a wall <laughs> but usually the writer you trust is working with a metaphor and I don't want to be hit over the head with it I want to be led to it emotionally whatever the point he's making that is relevant and if you're writing in YA or middle grade it should be relevant to what's going on in kids life it mm. should help them be able to chew over something that they are dealing with mm even if it doesn't involve robots mm -hmm. in real life, but on an emotional level, they recognize it. Within, it's like any great fiction, actually. Yeah. It doesn't have to be sci-fi. Within human, how, uh, how do you sort of navigate the waters? There, there's romantic interest in this. There are two, yeah. two boys who uh, pick your team. Which one? You know, are readers pretty evenly divided about who they want? They are. They are, with? and which surprised me because I thought it was obvious which one was the one. <laughs> but you know what? I was actually when I was conceiving it, I was less interested in the romantic aspect than they were the parts of the personality mm. she needed to absorb. It was very much about a girl learning who grew up in a very um, germophobic overprotected society and going to the wild side where there are animal people and learning how to tap into that for herself because women are brought up to be nice girls are brought up to be polite and not question authority and not say no in no uncertain terms and I wanted girls to embrace the fierceness and I, the two boys on the journey, one is a rule follower and one is a rule breaker. And both those positions have validity. Both of them have a time and place when you need to pull that out, where you say, no, these rules are wrong. I am not going to follow these rules. So they were 
kind of the angel devil sitting on her <laughs> shoulders through her journey. And We're kind of switching roles sometimes, too. As well, what I have by the end is the two boys rub off on each other and form a friendship. They're not mm-hmm. romantic rivals all the way through. And they grow also so that all three hopefully become more integrated personalities by the end of the book, which no teenager would want to hear me say. <laughs> it just ends with rip-roaring romance. <laughs> Well, we're going to talk more with, with Mookie and with Kat, and we're going to take your questions. So during our break, write down questions on those sheets of paper in front of you that you may have. We're going to segue over now to our third guest. I want to introduce Tim Brickley. If you are in Indiana, you no doubt have heard and heard about Tim Brickley, whether in one of his rock shows with his band The Bleeding Hearts, with his big band at at charity and big events around town, or as part of many theater projects, including Pure Prine uh, at the Phoenix Theater. He was on the soundtrack of the movie Going All the Way. Uh, He does whole shows highlighting the Great American Songbook Part 2 with great tunes from 1965 on. We're going to talk about a lot of that after the break, but for now, give a listen to our musical guest and welcome Tim Brickley. Hi, folks. Uh, This song was written for a friend of mine named Bob Bullock, who was a songwriter, a great guitar player, and he loved the Beatles even more than I did, which is hard to do. Uh, It's called Tell John and George. We were raised in the church of Beatles, saved by rock and roll. By the time I finally met you, you were 24 years old, and your band was called The Shouts. Ours was so lame, let's leave it out Your right hand rhythm strong And was straighter than John Wayne Angel drunk, high tenor Roaring in the April rain back in 87 It's hard to believe but this place was heaven Your eyes are full of empathy Heart full of fat guy pain Songs of truth and beauty Melody pure and plain Just like you Now what are we to do? Breaks your heart open wide Tell John and George we said hi Only laughter ringing out in these streets Did we smell the coming fall in that sweet August rain? This won't be coming around again Well, it's 2 a.m. at the patio And I sure ain't driving home Quest got low and kicking your bob on this now Rockin' bone louder than hell Buzzing the next day Man, you girls did look good How we love our neighborhood Breaks your heart open wide Till John and George we said hi, hi 
watching the kids may love being a dad Best kid you ever had You'd worked on that and had halfway house for sang four hours straight in some bar It went easy on you Losing. But now you remember it all and don't lose the next day Many kids always want to play Breaks your heart a win your questions bring those up and we'll be back in just a few moments welcome back to act two of Lou Harry gets real uh, once again I want to thank our sponsors not once again this is the first time I did it today and I should have done it earlier <laughs> and that's okay because I'll thank them twice right now thank you thank you to the aristocrat and its lovely Oxford room named after the birthplace of its owner the Oxford room is a, is perfect for so many types of gatherings the same excellent service as the restaurant. Formerly three studio apartments, the renovated area opened in 2014 now features rich wood paneling, leaded and stained glass windows and fixtures, as well as artwork and collectibles expertly curated by Mr. Rick Rising Moore. If you were here, you'd see that. So hopefully you can come out and check us out. But if not, come out for any kind of occasion here. Have dinner at the Aristocrat. Aristocrat. Uh, owner and publican since 1969, Mr. Rick Rising Moore runs the place. It seats up to about 60 people, equipped with audio-visual equipment, full bar, private bathroom, separate entrance. Have an event here at the Oxford Room with the Aristocrat, and we really appreciate them making a home for this podcast. Thank you so much. Um, Especially on a night like tonight. Like, it's super cozy in here, and it's cold outside. Yes. So it's warm, you, know, you, have, you have a drink, you warm yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Here. We're among friends. This is a beautiful thing. Welcome back to our audience for part two. <laughs> and welcome back to Tim Brickley. We, uh, I want to talk about this. This you obviously that song is influenced by your passion for the Beatles. It was. Um, tell me about Teen Tim Brickley and his music. Teen? Yeah, Teen Tim. Take us back. What were your influences? We talked uh, with our other guests about their literary okay. uh, influences. Tell us about your music. Um, well, I grew up in San Francisco, and I didn't move to Indiana until I was just about to be a teenager. And uh, I had an older brother who loved jazz, so when I was a kid, there was jazz playing in my room. And my sister, a couple years older than him, really loved the Beatles, so there was that. And then... Uh, yeah, so I think by the teenager, I was really bit by the Beatles bug and by <coughs> rock and roll and great songwriters like James Taylor. I think one of the first uh, uh, songbooks I got to learn how to finger pick was a James Taylor book. So, yeah, I just was really interested in songwriting and breaking apart songs and learning how to do it from being that age. What makes a well-written song for you? I mean, when do you... Um, 
what jumps out at you is wow that really worked is it just you know I guess it's uh, since I've made my living really singing you know being a saloon singer like Frank Sinatra would say uh, it took me a while to 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 learn how to sing and I because it didn't come naturally and I always thought oh I can't do it and and then I heard Nat King Cole and I went oh I'll never be able to do it (laughs) Uh, but then I did some research pre-internet I went to the IU library and researched Nat King Cole as deep as I could and I found an article from Life magazine in the early 50s where he said he used to hate his singing voice and it it was just took time and he said you never really know how to sing a song till you've sung it a hundred times and I thought, oh, I'll never be able to do that. <laughs> and kids, let me tell you, it goes quick. Yeah, you can do it. Yeah, it'll happen. For most of uh, us, that's pretty much happy birthday to uh, you, and that's it. Yeah. So I think a song, yeah, they uh, with repeated, if you if it if it can still grow with you, if you can still enjoy it after a hundred times, that's a good song. Well, people have said that about you know, but going back to the Beatles, about how the Beatles wouldn't be the Beatles if they didn't play some of their early stuff you know, hundreds of times in bars oh, yeah. before, you know, becoming famous. People treat almost every artist as a, you know, a, a sudden success that they came out of nowhere. Yeah, no, they put, the, they put the work in, yeah. Um, one of your shows that you, you do often, uh, the, the List, deals with what you call Great American Songbook Part 2. So many times we, and here in... In Central Indiana, we have the Great American Songbook Archives, and there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, those great songs from the 30s, 40s, you know, into 50s. Uh, do you think rock and roll songs and more pop songs since then get the short shrift a little bit? Well, not the short shrift. It's just it's just time passing. It's just, um, uh, yeah, for many years I made my living as a lounge singer singing standards, as jazz singer, and uh, after I fell in love with Nat King Cole. In fact... Lou Harry trivia. First time I remember Lou's name was in a restaurant review for a restaurant that I was the music director of Uh-oh. called Rick's Cafe Boatyard, a little place on the on the mm-hmm. west side. I, I was responsible for booking all the jazz music. And Uh-oh. <laughs> no, it's good. No, it's uh, uh, the uh, the owner made sure the music was piped through the whole restaurant, including in the restrooms. And Lou mentioned something like. It, it was great, but I don't know if I really need to hear the band doing uh, Steely Dan in the restroom so loud. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I always but, went for the but, important things. But no, but yeah, no, but it was a comp- he complimented the music, but he did the music was too loud in the bathroom, and he thought it, thought it was kind of odd uh, to you be doing. To think. How am I supposed to read if you're yeah. blasting music? But that's no, I've I've saved all my Lou Harry reviews. I have quite an archive, uh, uh, and so that was the first one I think. There we so, go. Uh, but that was yeah. So I was singing standards, and then. Um, yeah, time passes, and you know, gosh, the work of the great work of Paul Simon and Lennon and McCartney and well, you and helped put together James Taylor. It's prime. all it's all now fifty years old. So that's like you know, yeah. that's an old chestnut. You know, that's you helped put together the show that Brian Fonseca directed, Pure Prime. Yeah, correct. That which was, was dealing with the music of John Prine. Yeah, was, and there are there are just so many amazing songwriters uh, everywhere, and yeah. So Pure Prine was a show that my friend Brian Fonseca, who founded the Phoenix Theater, now is the Fonseca Theater, uh, put 30 John Prine songs together in a musical, six people playing and singing in a bar, no dialogue, but it tells a story of these six characters intertwining and coming together and falling apart, and uh, 
Easily one of the five best things I've seen originate in Indianapolis in my yeah. you know, since I've been here in the mid-90s. And we're still negotiating to try and do it again. We took it to Chicago, and then uh, John Prine said no after saying yes. He's, then he said, oh, I want to do my own. But he has not done his own. So right. we're going so to reopen. You did it there kind of as a concert, but not. Oh, we had to call concert. it a tribute concert, but we did it. It was the okay. same show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh, good. I'm th- thrilled to hear that that might yeah, it's, uh, arise it's, again. Oh, it needs to, yeah. Tell us a little bit about Lady Day. Lady Day at the Emerson at Emerson's Bar and Grill is a 1986 uh, musical that Lynette McKee made famous, one of the great jazz singers from like the 80s and 90s. Uh, it's about Billie Holiday's last uh, years, and it's set in a rundown bar in Philadelphia in 1957, a few years before she died. But it's just her and a piano player, and it's just really well-written play. And we are doing it in a little dive bar called The Linebacker, which is the guy claims, the owner Steve claims it's the second oldest bar in Indiana. But we have yet to find any documentation uh, on that. But uh, So it's just a little long shotgun bar, and there's a bar, and... Uh, uh, the the normal waitress is going to have to dress up in her fifties outfit, <laughs> and uh, and uh, the Monica Cantrell, the actress, uh, is is has come back from California to do the show, and it's it's going to be really good. So that's uh, that's going to be fun. And you've also worked to create some shows of your own, including one that on the surface may not sound like a musical, but we're excited about which one, Lily. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I was I mentioned this to Lou because of this with Cat and the science fiction theme. Um, I have been working on a two and a half hour rock opera about an American scientist <laughs> physician named John C. Lilly, no relation to Eli Lilly, uh, who was born in 1915, died at age 86 in 2001, and uh, it's really amazing. He's not very famous, but. Uh, in terms of science fiction movies, his work has been the basis of Day of the Dolphin with George C. Scott, Altered States with William Hurt, Brainstorm with Natalie Wood, uh, the sh- television show Fringe that was on Fox for many years, uh, and even The Matrix are all based upon work this guy did. He was kind of half out of his mind and half uh, uh, this real visionary scientist who. Uh, he, he developed the flotation isolation tank where you float in warm water in the dark as an aid in meditation. He did that in the late 50s. And then he pioneered communicating with dolphins and mammals. He was a brain researcher and he realized that dolphins and mammals and sea mammals had giant brains compared to humans. And he actually uh, worked for many years on trying, it was before com- really computer technology, I think they've made greater strides, but uh, he was really uh, obsessed with communicating and understanding how they related because they're so ancient. And then uh, in 1964, uh, in his flotation tank, he took the psychoactive substance LSD, which was legal at the time, and he had an experience that convinced him that the way to travel through the multiple universes is not with your body, but by changing your brain chemistry. So that's how you go somewhere else. And he spent his next 30 years as a 50, 60, 70, into his 80s researching this. And uh, it's truly fascinating. And there's going to be a big tap dance number in the middle of this? uh, Well, there's a duet with a dolphin. There's (laughs) tap dancing. Uh, But it gives me hope that there is an alternate universe where uh, uh, the occupant of the 
White House is different. <laughs> I think we got stuck in one. I think this is a universe that somehow uh, there's, there's one different somewhere. Can we hear a song from it? Yeah, so this is a song. So this is after, after that experience. You know, and he was much older than the his than the '60s generation that was uh, was going on. So in the mid '60s, uh, he really uh, he came to terms with the fact that uh, you know the male dominance of society wasn't really the right thing. That female energy was really, uh, if not equal, then way better than uh, what men were able to do. And uh, he took his uh, he took his uh, his whole mission kind of out on the road and so this is this is the end of act one where he's at the Esalen Institute in California in the mid 60s and uh, learning to uh, learning to open up a little bit uh, and it's called in my new way of thinking in my new
And at this point, the uh, telephone rings, and he picks it up, and there's this loud metallic chatter. And he goes, who is this? And he listens for a while, and he puts the phone down, and he goes, that was someone advising me on the coming of the solid state singularity. And that's the end of Act One. Tim Brickley. We have uh, questions that our audience members here at the Aristocrat offered up. Wanted to ask some of our panelists. Anyone chime in on these? Uh, what are your thoughts about shows like Black Mirror and Stranger Things that introduce a new generation to science fiction? I love them. And I also teach college at Northwestern, and it's amazing how college students are addicted to them, but also want to talk about the ideas going on in Black Mirror in particular. Um, Advice for someone who wants to write but can't put in the work. How do you make writing a habit? Uh, well, you have to start as a daydreamer, which teachers never like it when I say that at school visits. And find out how you tell yourself stories, whoever wrote this down. Uh, if it is not by sitting in a chair, if that's not where you tell yourself stories, then figure out what it is. If it's taking a walk, if it's doing the dishes, when does your brain go into story mode? And then find the way you best can capture it on paper. It shouldn't feel like work. It should actually feel like you're disappearing into the world and the story starts telling you. Now, I'm not going to say it's not e that it's easy. It's not. Being able to get in the groove of story mode is what writers spend their careers figuring out and trying to do. So think about, here's the example, think about the last time you wrote something you loved that came out effortlessly and figure out where you were when it happened, what time of day, was there anything going on, was it white noise in a cafe, was it in your room by yourself, and then start building rituals that can get you into that mindset because Writers are nothing but they love their rituals. I think too, people sometimes, when you're thinking about writing rather than writing, you know, what you experience as a reader is a finished product. You see the oh, end yeah. result. You're not necessarily seeing that process. And so sometimes I think a beginning writer or somebody who's thinking about sitting down to write a novel or something longer, um, will look at what they're writing and think it has to be as good as that, or it has to be that smooth. And they forget that the writer, they don't know, that the writer actually explored lots of different paths and then went through, I think of it as like carving a tunnel through a mountain. You know, you go through a lot of different ways to try to find your way through, but what you do when you get to the end as a writer is you smooth away all of those wrong turns you took so that nobody else sees them and you have your path through the, through the tunnel. But you have to, when you go into the writing, think, you know, this is not, you know, let's explore that road and see where that goes, or let's figure it out this way. You can only you have to be comfortable throwing away stuff. I'm going to yeah, throw go out. Ahead. Oh, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say I was a frustrated uh, artist as a kid, and I used to pick up all those, like, how to draw this or that books that would show you start with these bubbles, mm. and then add these bubbles, and then add these sketches, and eventually, like, 23 steps later, you'll have this. And I was like, but I just want that. <laughs> right. And I, I would just kind of like go, okay, well, can I just draw? And then I ended up tracing it. Right. <laughs> and that didn't teach me a thing. Right. I think there are writers who kind of trace it. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say, my first drafts are the ugliest first drafts. And I, they look like something a third grader would write. I am simply writing very ugly, simple sentences. And I don't want to spend any time 
trying to polish anything because I'm going to rip out the whole chapter perhaps. So I'm just trying to get through my hideous vomit first draft <laughs> mm -hmm. because I can polish anything. Mm -hmm. But getting that first thing down. So never be self-conscious about first drafts. The sculptor has to start by dumping all the clay in the middle of the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tim, I'm, I'm no, a songwriter, no. does that oh, I, Can I ask a question sure. first? Kat, do you write longhand or do you type? Uh, do you know, I was just talking about this with another writer friend of mine today. I have done both. And it's weird because I thought I had my process, but I'm realizing with each book, my process is different. And okay. I love to write longhand and I have favorite colored pens and favorite notebooks. And I wrote a huge chunk of undaunted longhand. And then the second book, I, it just wasn't working for me, so I did it. Yeah. So whatever, whatever actually gets the yeah. words on paper, don't get all caught up in having to do it one way. I was yeah. going to ask too about how does that apply to songwriting? With songs, it just sort of depends. I write a lot with uh, my best friend, uh, David Rines, who is primarily a lyricist. And so often we will either write together or he will send me something. He lives in Las Vegas now, so we, you know, text and just write long distance. And w when I, most of our great ones are together though and the mood has to strike you and you just have to learn to be there when it's coming through and capture it. Mm -hmm. So you know, I have hundreds of old cassettes and now it's just all in the phone mm -hmm. and you have to, same sort of thing. It's like don't get, just let it all out and it could be 20 minutes and then you, it's the feeling or whatever you're coming from. That song I played about my friend Bob that was, uh, it was like a month after his funeral, I saw, saw something in my phone I went, man, What's that? It's 15 minutes long. And it was me just letting the thoughts out and just playing randomly, and then that gets edited down. So. Mm -hmm. uh, someone asked, the YA audience of today is growing up in a digital and social media-centric era. Does that impact how or what you write? Uh, or are you thinking about you know, what the future of writing is? Uh, it impacts how... YA writers tell a story because cell phones are the death of adventure. Mm -hmm. So if a kid has a cell phone and he's being stalked by a tiger man, he can just call for help. <laughs> so the first deal you have to figure out, the first thing is how do I get rid of all the escape, all mm -hmm. the ways to contact parents and police and all of that. So that's the problem. But more importantly, the attention span and how you can capture a kid who has so much time to do other things. And it's that you have to make your story so enticing that you hook the kid at an emotional level so that they're not hearing the beeps of their text messages come in because they're so caught up in the emotion of your scene. What do you think are the biggest challenges of youth today? I'll start with Mookie. You're seeing lots of kids on a daily basis. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of nature versus nurture in terms of things like um, uh, attention deficit, which I struggle with. But I didn't grow up in the kind of environment we grow up in today. And the generation before me had a slower one and so forth. Um, and I don't envy the kids with that same condition today um, because I watch and there's just so much stimulus put on us. And we as adults have sped up um, our society with technology to the point where I watch parents um, guiding their kids along and it's just this constant, oh, look at this and look at this 
mm-hmm. and and the kids are just struggling to keep up with that. Um, and I don't think it's a thing we can change. It's just a part of who we are now. But um, you know, three generations from now, we're going to look very different. I was always curious about that at the Children's Museum, having brought my kids there for years. You know, how often is it the kid is ready to move on versus the parent is ready to move on? Yeah, I, uh, um, I absolutely love uh, watching parents and kids interact together and learn as a family. Um, whether it's the parent uh, telling the child something about what they're looking at that makes a connection or vice versa. Kids teaching parents is, is fantastic or, or siblings or whatever. Um, but I do frequently hear this kind of passive aggressive, um, okay, do you want to go and see other things now? <laughs> it's like, dad wants to. Right. <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about developing characters? How do you, are they, how do you sort of space what you're revealing about characters and how we're learning about them. How much do you have to give us early on so that we get a handle of who the These players are? These are very sophisticated questions. Yeah, we have about... a sophisticated audience. <laughs> nice job, you guys. Um, it's it's uh, a dilemma that writers have of what comes first, the character or the story concept. And to me, it doesn't matter because they're yin-yang. So I'm a writer who thinks of story concepts first. So I have a story where I have drooling animal people that have infectious saliva and they live in their own side of the world. What is the character type that would be most uncomfortable in it? So that is how I'm always thinking of it. I, to des- I knew she was going to be a 16-year-old girl. But to get her personality, I had to figure the personality that would be the most uncomfortable surrounded by infectious animal people, manimals. And so she's a germaphobe. But had I come up with a character first, like a lot of authors do, they have some character talking to them, the next step is what situation can I put that character in that will make that character the most uncomfortable? Because we reveal ourselves in moments of high stress. And that is what the author is always looking. How can I be really rough on my character? Do you feel any pressures of variation on the question here of incorporating social justice themes and sort of, I don't want to say hot themes, but messaging in the book beyond, hey, this is a... I'm not, I'm not that writer that's in my head that's a finger-wagger writer. Mm-hmm. I'm not Arthur Miller. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I have such strong opinions about what's going on in the world, especially for young people and the road that they have to hoe, that it comes out in the writing. Mm-hmm. And I may actually, in a second draft, have to cut back on the the monologue about <laughs> student loans or <laughs> something like that. But uh, it's, it's always bleeds in to my writing. I can't help it because the issues are relevant and you want to make your book relevant. Was it hard initially to get people to notice your book? How hard is it to get attention initially? I was really, really lucky. I wrote my book and rewrote it and then I was trying to find an agent and you send out query letters and I got 
lots of very nice rejections. And they all said the same thing. They said, I love your world, I love your plot, I can't connect to your lead character, which was a 15-year-old boy. And I made him funnier, I made him braver, I made him smarter, and I kept getting more of the same. And finally, one agent wrote me back and said, try flipping it into first person, and I'll take a second look, because right now I can't connect to your lead. And I was resentful. <laughs> at first and a week later I did it I flipped it into first person and I realized my background in screenwriting had shot me in the foot that I had missed a very important thing in screenwriting you only write what you can see and hear up in the film and I had only put those two senses throughout my book and when I went into the character's skin it just you felt so he, I felt so far away from him without all the other senses of smell, taste, feel. And I just simply added a few more senses to every single scene and I changed it to first person and I sent the manuscript out to four agents who had requested it and all four offered representation. So that one change, except for the guy who said he'd take another look. He never read it again. <laughs> and then from there, I got very lucky because Scholastic bought it in a two book deal. And the lovely thing was Scholastic goes into schools with the Scholastic newsletters. And so it just was great. They took care of it. I didn't, I just showed up places. <laughs> we got, can we get another song? We can. Can, uh, can I quickly say something about the kids and social media? Because, uh, Mookie, I like what you said, like, in three generations, we're going to be different. And yeah. Yeah. I don't like what social media has done to me, let alone <laughs> what I think it does to kids. So I was playing this really great organic dairy farm the other night, just acoustic, with my friend on percussion. And there was this beautiful, maybe two-year-old girl, like, maybe pre-really talking that well, on an iPad the whole night. And no one was talking to her. It looked like a really nice table. You know, everyone was having fun. There was a kid on the other end. And this kid's just going on. And I was kind of getting, you know, sad about it, going, someone talk to her or, you know. And then I started, we played Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. So it started with, starts with signature, signature guitar. And she looked up and looked right at me and went, Beatles. <laughs> and I was, it was like the sun came out. And I'm like, okay, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. Yep. And this kid, she's going to pilot us to Mars. Exactly. Uh, okay, I'm going to do one more song. This is an this is an early one that Dave, Dave an early song David and I wrote, and we know it never really had much of a life because I can explain it now. It's going to sound really sexist, and it's not. I want you to. Mm -hmm. This is a father talking to a son, just switch in your head a mother talking to a daughter mm -hmm. with the same sentiment and then it won't sound so blatantly sexist <laughs> uh so <laughs> this is in the tradition of songs like bob dylan's just like a woman mm -hmm. which uh uh yeah so maybe it is in the great tradition of rock sexist songs but it's not <laughs> it's not it's called the family when you marry a girl what my father said to me he said look at the mother before you choose the wife or you'll regret it you'll regret it for the rest of your life 
Listen to me, my son Listen now to what I say Go and have all your fun Just be careful before you wait Cause when I was a young man Tim Brickley tonight. Round of another round of applause for Tim. Thank you, folks. Thanks for having me, Leo. Great show. To Mookie Harris. Thanks, all. Cat Falls. I'd also like to thank producer Patrick Chastain and Miles Hall on sound. Way to go, Pat. Big thanks to the management and staff of our sponsor, The Aristocrat. And thank you to the serving staff here. Thanks also go out to William F. Nolan, David Gerold, Robert Silverberg, and Ray Bradbury. Thanks to Elton John and Heather Headley and Joe and Robert Falls and Jody Applegate and Cindy Harry and everyone else involved in the circumstances that led to my friendship with Cat Falls. Thanks to the folks at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis who years ago quietly locked the place down while we searched for my missing kid who was hiding in an A sign. <laughs> Thanks to William Walters, a friend, the father of a friend, who without condescension talked to me about the science fiction books and horror books I was reading and reinforced the idea that reading for pleasure was a good thing. And thanks to all the people who joined us here at the Aristocrat for this party we call Lou Harry Gets Real. And thanks to all the listeners out there on the podcast. Thank you. Keep an open heart and an open mind, and we'll see you soon. Yeah, you enjoy it? It was great. No, it was very fun.